Amen. You may be seated. a lot of stuff has gone wrong this morning. Alrighty, well, good morning again, it's good to see you, good to be in the house of the Lord today, amen? We're going to be starting a brand new sermon series this morning uh, through the book of Esther, so I invite you to turn uh, to Esther chapter 1 verse 1 is where we're going to start. While you're turning there to the book of Esther, uh, I'm going to go through just a couple of interesting things about this book. Um... In my research, I could only find a handful of commentaries about the book of Esther. Uh, In fact, the first commentary on Esther wasn't written until 700 AD. So uh, when you think about uh, all the great books of the Bible, people were writing things and and putting thoughts down as early uh, as about uh, 76 to 80 AD, but nothing was written on the book of Esther until 700 AD. Uh, Martin Luther never preached uh, on it or through it. uh, In fact, Martin Luther said that he couldn't even understand why it was in the canon of Scripture. Uh, Historically, Christians don't know what to do with this book, and I'll tell you one reason why. God is not mentioned in this book. There is no God, there is no prayer, there is no Scripture, no observance of the Torah. There's nothing religious in the book of Esther. And so historically, Christians haven't known what to do with it. Uh, The Jews have it simply because it explains where the Feast of Purim comes from, and that's the only reason that it is still in the Jewish scriptures. And so uh, Martin Luther didn't know what to do with it, John Calvin didn't know what to do with it, John Wesley didn't know what to do with it, and I finally got to uh, a commentary, and in the introduction of that commentary, it literally said, uh, it's not a good idea to preach exegetically through the book of Esther. Now... Anyone who knows me, challenge accepted. So turn to uh, the book of Esther, chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll begin. Uh, No one knows who wrote the book of Esther. It bears Esther's name, but it was more than likely that she didn't write it. Uh, It was more than likely that it was Mordecai, her uncle, who actually wrote down this story. Uh, But we don't even know that as far as who wrote this book or when it was written. Some people believe it was written right after the fact. But most uh, scholars actually believe that it was written, uh, one of the last books of the Bible, of the Old Testament rather, to actually be written down. The the story was there, the the tale that had happened was there, but it was one of the last ones to actually be written down. And so I hope that didn't mess me up too bad. As you can tell from the title uh, of the sermon series, the title is Greater. And here's what I believe about the book of Esther. While every other book of the Bible is like a painting where you can see the brushstrokes, you can see the colors, you can see the artist at work, Esther is more like a silhouette. Uh, have you ever been to Disneyland and had one of those people like, and they pull out a picture of you, uh, and you can see the eyelashes? On. No one's ever done this? Just me? All right, well, uh, feedback, people. Look, we've come up, we've already discussed this. I'm a narcissist. I need feedback, all right? So feedback, please. Um, And so so the book of Esther is very much like that. It is a a silhouette of the work of God rather than showing a direct picture. And so uh, as we go through the book of Esther, it's going to take us about 12 weeks from start to finish. 
What I want to do is pull out the greatest story, or rather how every story, character, place, and event actually talks about God without ever mentioning his name. Right? So, Esther, chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. Strap in. This is going to be fun for me. Not necessarily for you. 1, verse 1. Now, in the days of Asuras, the uh, Asuras who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. So, clearly, we need to stop for a minute and discuss who this particular gentleman is. Uh, Asuras, I'm, by the way, props to Judith for getting through this. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce half of these, these words. My theory of pronouncing words in the Bible is do it quickly, do it with confidence, and then everyone will think you know what you're talking about. So uh, for us today, his name is going to be Asuras. I don't know if that's his real name. For the rest of the sermon, however, we're going to refer to him by his Greek name, which is Xerxes. Now, Xerxes is a name that you might be familiar with. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie 300, I don't recommend it, or I can't recommend it because of the content. Uh, but he's the bad guy. He's the really tall, uh, really weird-looking guy that gets carried around. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but he was called Xerxes the Great. Uh, Xerxes the Great uh, was a Persian king, and I don't mean to stress this, he ruled over everything. Uh, we've just finished our sermon series in the book of Daniel. You know that Nebuchadnezzar was there for a period, and then the story shifted over to Darius. Darius is Xerxes' father, right? And so Darius, uh, if you've ever wondered how this sort of worked, you had the Babylonian Empire, which was huge, uh, and then the Persian Empire came in and said, you know what, we can do one better, and they conquered the Babylonians, took everything uh, that was the Babylonians and assimilated into their culture, and so Persia was now the world empire. Uh, so for our sermon series that we've been tracking, uh, we talked about how Egypt was once the world empire, then the, Babylon uh, the Assyrians came in, then the Babylonians came in on top of them, and now the Persians have piled in on top, and they've taken over everything. So Xerxes literally ruled the entire world. It is not a stretch to say that Xerxes looms over the life and story of Esther in every way imaginable. He is a larger-than-life figure, and this morning... What we're going to be looking at in these first nine verses is Xerxes. We're going to be looking at him, his kingdom, his power. Uh, if you're with me, say amen. 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 All right, so uh, more about Xerxes. He is a fascinating guy. If you ever have a chance to sit down and study him, uh, there was a, gr a Greek historian. His name was Herodotus. He was the, he's called the father of modern uh, history. And the reason he's called that is because up to that point, uh, history was written by the victors. If you won the battle, uh, history would record you as an almighty, uh, benevolent, wonderful person. And if you were the loser, well, you were recorded as the loser. You know what I mean? Like the loser. Like Tom Brady sitting on his butt at the Super Bowl. Like the loser. I'm a Seahawks fan. I'm allowed to do it. Quiet. Anyway. And so Herodotus... Uh, was the first person to actually think, you know what, maybe history would be better recorded as a balanced and unbiased narrative. And so he was uh, started uh, with the writings about the Persian Empire and this uh, Persian king, Xerxes. And so all of this information actually comes from the father of history, the first person to sit down and think, hmm, maybe we should actually record this properly. So Xerxes is in his mid-30s. Uh, we're going to read in a moment that it was the third year of his reign. Uh, he assumed the throne at about the age of 32 or so. Uh, so now, he, in his age in this story, he's about 35 or 36. Now, his age is kind of important. 
uh, because I am 34 years old. Soon. Am I 33? Am I 34? I can never remember. I, I'm getting to this guy's age. That's my point. Could you imagine me ruling an empire? Right? Whoever said scary thought, yes. Scary thought. This guy rules over everything. Uh, the history books tell us that Xerxes grew up wealthy and powerful. Uh, his father, as I mentioned, was King Darius, uh, who was the one who created this Persian empire, solidified it under himself, conquered, butchered, was a horrible individual. Uh, definitely we don't want to look too closely into him. Uh, but Xerxes grew up in that family uh, of wealth and power and influence and affluence. Uh, and he lives at this point in the story in Susa, which if you want a modern day location, is Iran. And so the Persian Empire actually had four capitals, uh, four capital king, uh, cities rather, uh, one for every season, as you do. You know, everyone has four houses so that in spring you can move to here, in summer you move to here. This was what Xerxes had. This story centers uh, in, the, in Susa, uh, which we read in scripture. Uh, one of the important bits about Susa is the fact that this story takes place away from Jerusalem. Now, if you remember our sermon series through Daniel, uh, you'll remember that Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Nebuchadnezzar came in, conquered the place, uh, killed a lot of people, destroyed the temple, took all the good-looking people off into captivity. At this time in the story, there's actually been a split. Uh, under Darius, some of the Israelites were actually allowed to go back to Jerusalem and start rebuilding the temple. You get that in the story of Ezra. Uh, but for us, the rest of the Jews stayed in captivity and stayed in the kingdom of Persia when Darius took it over. Are you with me so far? All right. The Empire. Not a Star Wars reference. The empire of Persia stretched almost the entire known world. Um, do I have a... I thought I had a map. We'll get there, maybe. Uh, there is no... Uh, so, uh, the empire of Persia stretched the entire wo uh, world. There's literally no one in the world who uh, rules like Xerxes. Right? He is uh, referred to as the king of all kings, or the king of kings. That sounds a little familiar. Uh, we stole that from him. Um, Literally, we did. That's going to be at the end. You look at me with blank faces. Uh, he was called the King of Kings. No one ruled like Xerxes ruled. He ruled with an iron fist. Uh, King Darius, uh, who we, we met in the book of Daniel, was Xerxes' father, a legendary king. Um, Darius created this empire by invading places and assimilating them, making them adapt to his religion, to his rules, and to his rule itself. Uh, and so he went everywhere, conquered everything, and created this massive empire. Uh, it spans multiple nations and peoples, uh, different races, different ethnicities, different languages, and different religious convictions. Um, the Persian Empire, and especially uh, Darius and his son Xerxes, uh, were actually into uh, Zoroastrianism. 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 Wow! Who cares? They, uh, they worshipped this deity called Ahura Mazda, which means the wise lord, and that was their supreme being. They were uh, uh, multiple deities that they believed in, but this was their king, Kuki. This was the guy that they worshipped, and they actually, uh, Xerxes started the myth that he was this guy's son, that uh, instead of 
Darius being his dad, that this uh, wise lord and supreme being was in fact the father of Xerxes. Uh, the nations have changed in name, but to give you a basic understanding, he ruled from the Sudan all the way up to Pakistan and all the way over to Greece. So I do have a uh, uh, map here. Uh, everything that is green is where Xerxes rules. The only thing that Xerxes doesn't rule at this point in history is this tiny little confederacy of different city-states uh, led by Athens. If you know anything about Greek history, you know that there are uh, multiple little city nations popping up in Greece at this time. Uh, they had formed an alliance, and Athens being the strongest was the head of that alliance. Uh, and so again, if you watch the movie 300, even though I can't recommend it, it actually describes the army of Persia marching on the armies, the united armies of Greece. Uh, and so this is what I'm trying to do. I'm giving you more information than you need to convince you this is actually real history. This is a real event that happened to real people in real places. And uh, one of the interesting things about Scripture is the amount of details that are found in Scripture uh, prove its uh, historical accuracy when leveled up or, or held up against extra-biblical material. So you can go through the writings of Herodotus and you can find characters like Darius and characters like Xerxes, and their history matches up with what the Bible records, which is one of the reasons we know that the Bible is reliable. So, uh, Xerxes at this point in human history is nothing short of a god in the eyes of those who observe his reign and rule. Uh, there is no one in the world who has his level of power and authority. There is no one greater than him. In Salvation Army terms, this guy's the general, right? General walks into a room, you should see it. Every officer that I know, as soon as the general walks into the room, like they straighten up a little bit, right? Am I wrong? Am I, am I wrong? No. You walk in, general walks into the room, everyone stands. That's what you do. This was Xerxes. He was no one like him in the entire world. Have I built him up enough yet? Because there's more. Even in the history of the world, there has no one been as powerful as Xerxes. So, like I said, he's assimilated different empires. So, uh, I found this as very. I found this as a very interesting fact. How did Xerxes enforce this massive empire? It goes all the way up to Pakistan, down to Sudan, all the way over to India. How does he impose his will, and how does he enforce it? Um, he created the world's first postal system. He created. Uh, he would say a decree. He would say the decree was the word of God. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Just saying. Uh, and it was believed that he was a God man. Uh, he called himself the King of Kings. In fact, um, it, uh, it was believed that he spoke with the voice of the Son. And when he said something, it was like the Bible. It was an error. It was perfect, and it was to be immediately obeyed. Xerxes, from one of his palaces, would speak. And people would write down and they would post that to the entire empire. We read in verse 1 that there was 120 satraps or provinces. Uh, and so it would go out to each one of those and then they would disseminate that word perfectly amongst everyone else. In fact, that postal service had a slogan. Neither snow nor rain, no gloom of night, stays these valiant couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. Does that sound familiar to anyone? You stole it, you bunch of thieves. <laughs> this shows the effect of Pers the Persian Empire still has on culture today. Right? This still has an effect. 
This is the United States Postal Service slogan now. It came from King Xerxes. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. Some of you didn't. Whatever. To put this in perspective, the man ruled roughly over 3 million square miles, which is about the same size as the United States, geographically. This was 3,000 years ago. Without modern conveniences to get you from one side of the country to the other, he held it in an iron fist. He brutally ruled and reigned throughout the entire known world. Now, what I'm trying to get you to, to get here, this guy's a big deal. He is the kingpin of this story. Literally the kingpin of this story. He is the, the leader, the one that everyone needs to understand. So, that brings us to verse 2, where we're going to talk about the palace a little bit. In those days when King Asura sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, um, as I mentioned before, he had four, just in case. Like, you know, you blow the tire off one, you want to have a spare. Like that, but with palaces. In his palace, sorry, his palace sat on something called the Acropolis, which means high point. Uh, so literally, as you were coming into Susa or any of his capital cities, uh, cities it would be built going towards a point. Uh, have any of you ever read the Chronicles of Narnus, Narnia, uh, The Horse and His Boy? Uh, in, in The Horse and His Boy, C.S. Lewis actually takes his description of the capital city of that particular empire, uh, of the bad guys, uh, their empire, and models it on the Persian Empire, including the way that they designed cities, which was you would have a city going to a rising point, and on top of the highest point of the city is where the king's palace was. And as, as you uh, started off in the city, you would have the slums around the very outside. And then as you got closer and closer to the center, so it was the classes. You got increasingly wealthy the further to the palace that you went. And then at the very top would be the king or, uh, uh, or the emperor's palace at the, at the high point. And so literally he sits over everyone like a god. Everyone has to look up to him every morning when they wake up. They have to look to the center of the city. They have to look up and pay homage to him. Uh, peasants would have to gaze up at his palace and kingdom. Uh, and most importantly, Xerxes would look down on people. Uh, let's be honest, we know people like that, right? People who like to use their position of power and authority to look down on people. That's Xerxes. Xerxes times a million. Right. Xerxes' soldiers. Uh, Xerxes was protected by personal bodyguards called the Immortals. Um, if you show up for a fight and one guy's like, yeah, I'm an Immortal, what do you do in that fight? <laughs> I run away. Like, I'm not gonna, like, if you're Immortal, it means you can't die, it means I can't win. Uh, he had a group of bodyguards called the Immortals, which will, they would die for him. Um, these soldiers, these warriors, the personal bodyguard division of Xerxes, uh, they actually thought they were invincible. They thought that they got their power uh, from Xerxes himself, which would make him as a god, meant that they could never be defeated. And there was 10,000 of them. His bodyguard, his entourage, consisted of 10,000 warriors. 10,000. Okay, you guys aren't looking impressed. Um... Carol said something I didn't hear. I'm assuming she's agreeing with me. Yeah, yeah, be quiet, yeah. All right. 
They would travel anywhere. They went with him where he would go. They would die for him. They would defend him. They would go to war. They would protect him. In addition to those 10,000 warriors, he also had 2,000 horsemen and 2,000 lancers, which means whenever the king went anywhere, he had 14,000 people on his entourage. Like, when you, when you look at modern-day uh, musicians when they're walking around and you see, like, their security guards, you know, the big beefy guys, black suit, put their finger to their ear, you think, man, that's a lot of, that's a lot of bodyguards for that one little person. Xerxes had 14,000 people. That's a lot. When you see the President of the United States get off an airplane and you see, like, 25, 30 people around him all, like, pushing people back, 14,000 And those were just the soldiers. That wasn't including political officials. That wasn't including advisors. That wasn't including uh, the arm of his religious military that he had. That wasn't including any of that people. That was just the people who would protect him. Uh, History also tells us that he did it all while sitting on his royal throne. His throne was massive, made of solid gold. And if you're thinking, man, that would be heavy, that's exactly what his slaves thought who had to carry it into battle wherever he went. They would get underneath it, and the throne would go on top of them, and they would literally have to carry his throne wherever he went. And I'm not saying just they didn't border onto the nearest plane and then go, no, this is a three million square mile kingdom. Wherever he went, whatever battle he went into, they carried the throne with him. The throne symbolized everything that he valued. It was huge. It was made of gold, which is the most expensive material. It was shiny, and everyone's attention went to it. Like If you walked into a room and you saw a massive throne, you'd be looking at that. Like That's what you would do. It was everything that this man valued. It was beautiful, enormous, glorious. Uh, The picture of him uh, seated on it high and exalted on a throne. It's a godlike portrait. have I, have I gotten across that Xerxes thought himself to be a god? And everything that he did in his life was structured around improving that image and making everyone think that Xerxes himself was a god or the son of God. Like I said, he loved it so much he would go into battle. Uh, he had an army that was a, perhaps a few million. We don't know the exact amount. We know it was one million plus. Estimates, some estimates put it as high as 5 million, though conservative estimates put it at about 2. Right? His army was 2 million people strong. Most of these would have been slaves, forced or pressed into service to die for the Persian Empire. With the most high positions being Persians themselves, who ruled through cruelty, fear, and pain. I don't know what you would feel if you woke up one morning and there was on the horizon a three million strong army surrounding your entire city. You would surrender. That's what most people did. And so ironically, the Greeks, but that's another story. When his army marched off into battle, he would have his throne carried into battle and he would sit on it surrounded by immortals and they would set it on a high, uh, high point and watch his military defeat his foes while seated on a throne. They would find a mountain or a hill above the battle. They would uh, center everything just like his central city and his empire. And everything would look up and he would be seated at the high point on his throne. He would be looking down and you would get the feeling, I'm sure people did, that he was uh, through magic controlling his forces. Uh, he would look like a godlike figure. Uh, he would say, do this, and people would see it, and, and his armies would move in that direction. 
Can you imagine the figure that this man cut? Now, I also want to point out, he was apparently about six foot two. He was a tall guy. In those days, people were a little bit shorter. He was a tall guy, buff. Part of history, part of the history book says that he was an exceptionally looking, good-looking man. I'm not going to say anything about that. He's a good-looking guy. He's not some langle, He's not some weird guy. He's a good-looking guy. He looks like the son of God. About that throne, if anyone was to sit on that throne, they would be killed instantly. Anyone but Xerxes sat on his throne, it was a death penalty. If anyone was to sit or stand rather on the rug in front of his throne, death penalty. He wasn't a kind man. He was a cruel, tyrannical dictator. If anyone passed before him or just his throne, even when he wasn't sitting on it, if someone passed in front of his throne, because the throne represented everything that Xerxes loved, if anyone was just, uh, even if the throne was just sitting there empty, anyone that walked in front of it had to bow to the throne. And the guards that constantly filled his hall would see if anyone didn't bow, and if you, if you didn't bow, <coughs> that's the nice way of putting it. Persians invented crucifixion, in case you're wondering wasn't the Romans. The Romans perfected it, but the, but the Persians were the ones who invented crucifixion. Just to put that out there when I'm talking about death sentences. Xerxes thought he was a god, and he was worshipped as a god. So, let's get into a little bit the party. Hey, who loves a good party? Have you ever been to a good party? Like, I'm talking like, uh, knock down, drag out, this is an awesome party, everyone's having fun. Have you ever been to a good party? Feedback, come on, come on. There we go. All right, great. Uh, verse 3. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the province who were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness. For many days, 180 days, he invited every political, every noble, every military leader, and this party went on for 180 straight days. You've been to a party, not like this, 180 days. Now, he has an army of 3 million people. He has 127 provinces. Every single province has a governor, and under those governors are nobles who rule in certain uh, rural areas. All of those people are invited. His military leaders, every single person who is in a position of power and authority, uh, is in attendance of this party. All of his servants are in attendance of this party. Anyone who is anyone in Persia is at this party, and it goes on for 180 days. The estimate is that this party had between 25 and 50,000 people in attendance for 180 days. What Xerxes was doing was bolstering political and military support for his invasion of Greece. He wanted everyone on board. And how do you get someone on board? You shower them with praise. You shower them with a party. You do everything you can for them so that you can get them on board. He went for 180 days. This was the party to end all parties. Am I right? Oh, yeah. Can you even imagine or conceive of how grand this party was? This is a massive party. 
Verse 5. When these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Uh, this is interesting. This 180-day party didn't include any of the commoners. It didn't uh, uh, include any of the poor or the downtrodden, the working people, the blue-collar people. It didn't invite any of those people. It was only the people he wanted to impress. After the 180 days, he threw open the gates of his citadel and said, Come on in. Can you imagine a beggar who has to go from day to day begging in the streets for the food or shelter that he needs to survive, walking into the king's citadel, walking through the gates, which are made of burnished bronze, uh, massive, some say 30 to 60 feet high gates that can be spread apart, and he walks in and sees the splendor and the glory of this palace. And instead of having to beg for food and scraps off someone else's table, he can sit down at the, in one of the king's banquet halls and he can feast for seven days without stopping. He can eat his fill. He can drink his fill. He can do whatever he wants for seven days. Can you imagine what that would do to the people in Susa, the favor that that would curry? Guys, we're about to go to war, but it's okay. We have all of this money. We have all of these provisions. We have all of this treasure. You can be a part of it. Come on in and support my war and campaign. We'll conquer Greece. It won't take very long. We'll get all of their wealth to add to ours, and I'll take care of you. This is what's happening in, at the early story here in Esther. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings, uh, fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods uh, and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels. Vessels were different kinds and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired and then Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Asarius. Now, that was a lot of information. Let's go through some of it. Violet and purple is the most expensive color in the world. You had to import certain dyes from, from remote regions. It was expensive. That's why in the book of Acts, uh, Lydia is... Uh, recorded as a dye merchant to show that she was uh, affluent, that she had money. Because dyes were expensive. The Roman emperor, emperor would wear a purple sash to show how much power and influence he had. Xerxes hung them as curtains. That's how much power and influence that he had. He hung them on silver curtain rods. Pure silver curtain rods stretching across all of his windows. Purple drapes coming down. I love this one. His couches were made of gold and silver. That can't be very comfortable. Can we be honest about that? Like, sure, if there's an impressive factor when you walk into the lobby and you're like, oh, that's a pretty, oh, that's gold. It's nice. It's pretty. Oh, it's silver too. It goes with the furniture. That's great. Like, there's that little impressive factor when you first see them. I can't imagine sitting down and be like, so cold. Ooh, no heating. Sorry, I don't like being cold. I can just imagine sitting on silver would be very cold. And maybe, maybe the thing that we... 
you broke breeze over when you were reading the scripture. The floor was made of precious stones. Like there was mosaic patterns with emeralds and rubies and diamonds and the floor was made of precious stones. Like you get engaged and the, the lady comes in and she's like, look at my ring, look at my rock. Xerxes is like, look at my floor. It's the same thing. It's more. Drinks were served in golden vessel, each with a different picture engraving on it. What historians believe is that uh, the way that they recorded history and, and military conquest was to engrave it on their cups. And you can go into uh, history museums today and find cups from these periods uh, of engraving and you would find a military victory on them. And there was enough that everyone could drink from a different cup with a different military victory on it. This was an incredible night. This would be fantastic. So, what we've looked at. Uh, and I'll end with this, in, in this description. Um, when we read that Vashti uh, threw a party herself for all of the women of the court, those were all the royal concubines uh, that Xerxes would sleep with whenever he wanted to, because he could. He had power, he had that much power that any woman that he wanted, he could just take. It didn't matter that they were people, it didn't matter that they had dignity and worth in and of themselves. If he wanted someone, he would take them. And Vashti threw a party for them separately. But then historians would say, uh, because normally what would happen is in these huge military parties, uh, the wives of those military officials would actually be the servants at that party. But because they were having a party of his own, uh, Xerxes brought in prostitutes from the entire land to service the guests at the party. The wealth, the decadence, the outrageous moral sin is incredible. In these first nine verses, I hope I've built you a picture of what Xerxes was like. Do you get the, the picture? But here's, here's what's interesting about this story. Jesus is a greater king. That's why this sermon series is called Greater, the Story of Esther. Because everything that I'm going to tell you is going to point to God being greater in some way. So in this particular nine verses, I believe it shows that Jesus is a greater king. Xerxes rules in fear. Jesus rules in love. Jesus is greater. Xerxes sat on a throne. Jesus rules uh, all creation from a throne. In heaven right now, Jesus is greater. Xerxes ruled an empire? Great. Jesus rules a universe. Jesus is greater. Xerxes threw a party that lasted for 180 days. Jesus will throw a party that lasts eternity. He will throw a party and a banquet for his people that lasts eternity. Jesus is greater. Xerxes killed people that didn't bow down to him. Jesus died for people who, to this day, still refuse to bow down to him. Jesus is greater. Xerxes thinks himself as a god. Jesus is God. Xerxes is dead. He is dust. We remember him from history books. We remember him from engravings on cups. That's the entire impact that he has had now on history. He is dust and his bones are dust. He is gone. But Jesus, God himself, rules everything and will last for eternity. And so Jesus is greater. Every character, every place, every event that we're going to talk about over these next 12 weeks is going to point to God being greater. So, here's the point for today. 
Jesus is a greater king than Xerxes will ever be. Do you act like it? That's my challenge for you today. That's how we're going to end our service. Uh, we're going to end in just a couple of minutes and sing our, our benediction. Um, here's my challenge for you today. This is not an altar call. This is, not, this is my challenge. Do you act in your life as a Christian like Jesus is greater than anyone you've ever met? Do you act like Jesus is a greater king than anyone that has authority in and over your life? Is Jesus the most important thing? Is he greater for you? If he's not, then he needs to be. And come and talk to me after the service and I'll, I'll talk to you about how Jesus should be greater. i got more, but it's 12 o'clock and Bill wants to get out of here. Right? Jesus is greater. We need to celebrate that. We, we can't be mournful Christians. We can't be sad sack Christians. We can't be cowardly Christians. We need to think, we need to act, we need to behave like God, like Christ is a greater king than we will ever see or the world has ever seen because he is. Amen? Amen. Amen. Uh, I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing our benediction. Father God, we thank you for this time that you've given us to come into your presence and to worship you. I pray, Lord God, that each one of us here can reflect in our own lives uh, about your place in our lives. Lord, we know from Scripture that you are the greatest king to ever live, that you lived and you died for us. We ask, Lord, that you come into each one of our lives, that you would fill us anew with the power of your Holy Spirit so that we can go from this place and we can believe and know that you are a greater king than anyone in our lives. We thank you and we praise you this day. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, yes, you're doing your thing and then we'll sing the benediction.